HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's c-o-m-t-e-usa.com. Hello everyone, I'm Carlos Yescos, I'm your guest host for today. Before we begin, I want to remind listeners to send in your ideas about topics you would like us to cover on the show. You can do so by following us on our show page on Instagram at Cutting the Curd. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Grace Grishuni. She is an American organic farmer and writer. She's the author of books and articles on soil management and composting. She serves on the faculty of Goddard College in Vermont and the Institute for Social Ecology. It is precisely her involvement in the social ecology movement that we will be talking about today. Welcome to the show, Grace. Thanks, Carlos. And I just one correction. I have not served on the Goddard faculty for 20 years. So <laughs> that's an old piece of information. Apologies for that. It's uh, okay. Why don't we then use this to to um, to introduce you correctly? Why don't you tell us about you and your work? I'll be glad to do that. Um, so we are social ecology focused, and I joined the faculty of the Institute for Social Ecology in 1986 to teach a course called uh, Bioregional Agriculture. And uh, from there, I had uh, I had already been involved in the organic farming movement and involved in organic certification and written about soil management. And so um, I then got into teaching um, in the social ecology program at Goddard, and when that program was ended um, and the institute lost its its land base because we didn't have Goddard students. Um, I've taught in several other uh, colleges, um, mostly online, um, for uh, Green Mountain College most recently um, in my Masters of Sustainable Food Systems program. Um, 
So I, and I currently teach um, through the Institute's online program and co-teaching a course called Climate and Food Justice, or maybe it's Food and Climate Justice with Brian Tokar. <laughs> and our, uh, our next session is coming up beginning May 12th. It's a six session class, um, two hours a week of um, online discussion and uh, guest presenters. And we also have an option for people who can't fit it into their schedule or, or whatnot, and they can um, do a self-directed version using the recordings and the study guides that we provide. So, um, I'm, so I'd like people to know that that is available if you go to the um, Institute for Social Ecology, www.social-ecology.org. Um, and you will find um, the, the information about how to register there. Um, my other claim to fame, yeah, is, is that uh, in addition to being a farmer and grassroots organizer, I ended up um, getting drafted by USDA to come help write the regulations for the National Organic Program. So that is, um, that's a very long story. And I ended up uh, <laughs> working for USDA for five years. At the same time, I was teaching social ecology and food system related issues um, there. And um, what happened and how how or what how the whole organic movement evolved is a subject of uh, the memoir I wrote about six years ago called Organic Revolutionary, a memoir of the movement for real food, planetary healing, and human liberation. And that book mm -hmm. is uh, is now in its third edition actually it was finally, it was originally self-published and has now been picked up by uh, Black Rose Books. Uh, unfortunately, the release was just at the beginning of the pandemic, so um, I haven't gotten out and talked about it very much, but uh, the book <laughs> is available. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I will encourage all our listeners to get the book, um, but we're going to talk a little bit more about what is social ecology. And mm -hmm. so, Grace, if you could help us kind of understand what is social ecology uh, in the sort of big picture. Yeah. Well, I'm actually going to uh, to just read a little, a, a little statement from the social ecology website which would be better than depending on my, my uh, off the top of my head brain power. Um, and the, the definition is a coherent radical critique of current social, political, and anti-ecological trends and a reconstructive ecological, communitarian, and ethical approach to society. 
And a, a, a little bit longer explanation is that social ecology advocates a reconstructive and transformative outlook on social and environmental issues and promotes a de directly democratic confederal politics. Social ecology envisions a moral economy that moves beyond scarcity and hierarchy towards a world that reharmonizes human communities within the natural world while celebrating diversity, creativity, and freedom. So that's all very abstract, but um, social ecology has, besides being a, a political and um, social movement, uh, is also um, has a very, its own analysis and its own approach to ecology and human humans' role in the natural world and, and the idea of reharmonizing human communities is a is a central idea. That's that's a very good explanation with social ecology is and I and I encourage people that are listening to go and read uh the on the website a little bit more. But I Taking this explanation from you, Grace, I would like to understand how does your work and teaching fit within social ecology? You mentioned your work at the, uh, you know, working the in the organic certification, also as a farmer, also as a as an advocate and teacher. You know, how how does your work sort of uh, fit within these ideas of social ecology? Well, alternative agriculture and food systems has been a an integral part of, of social ecology from the get-go. Um, and my work on organic certification, I think a lot of people have have looked askance at that actually and uh, see that as, uh, as too much um, supportive of the market economy and capitalism and uh, so I think that um, that's part of why I had to write my memoir is to make it clear what that what organic agriculture as a, a marketing term really had the potential to be. So um, I mean, Murray Bookshin, as you may know, was the was the co-founder of the Institute for Social Ecology and the theoretical genius who, who really devised most of the philosophical um, ideas and, and political ideas um, that form the basis for social ecology. And he is um, one of his less well-known books that I think was an important one that predated the release of Silent Spring by a few months was called um, Our Synthetic Environment, in which he talked about um, the, the danger to soil and water and human health and the environment from the, the current methods of agriculture and food systems and so forth and so on. And he talked also a great deal about the need for localized food systems and decentralized politics, starting with 
control over uh, local control over the basic necessities of life, like food and water and energy and health care and so forth. So this is uh, this is really fundamental to social ecology, and that's why there was a course being taught in the institute called bioregional agriculture that was foundational. Right. And so just to sort of um, recap, this is this comes from a, a sort of a critique of capitalism for, for our listeners, a, a critique of capitalism that is trying to reinsert uh, sort of social aspects, but as well as um, uh, move beyond just your know, identity politics, uh, 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 racial, uh, uh, radical theory, and also include ecology as a part of the of the critique uh, of of um, capitalism and how to, uh, but also be as you said in the beginning of the introduction, uh, a, a propositive, a, a positive way of coming up with solutions for that. Am I correct that this is mm -hmm. the reading of what, in general, social social ecology could be understood as? That is that's very true, exactly, um, and uh, sometimes. It's characterized as utopian, and we wear the utopian uh, label proudly because we we believe that we must uh, we must envision and have the imagination to discover and to create um, different forms of social uh, social relations as as well as relationships with the the natural world or second nature um as bookshin would call it wonderful that's that's wonderful and so now just to uh, i guess to bring this what seems that could be understood as you know a lot of theory as you say as sometimes uh uh utopic i would like to bring it sort of closer to uh, a conversation about the food system in the United States, if you allow me. And so sure. my question is, um, when thinking about our current food system in the U.S., where do you see the biggest obstacles for change to a system that better protects the earth, but also you know, sort of accounts for the questions within uh, the social ecology movement? Well, certainly the biggest obstacles are political. I mean, there's no question about that. <laughs> Um, and that's why most of the emphasis in the social ecology world is really on politics and um, and forms of organization. So um, you know, political with us with a emphasis on radical politics, on decentralized, directly democratic politics. Uh, Anti-capitalist in the in the sense of um, the 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 really um, the ecological problems and social problems are all connected, and they're all connected to the the essential dynamic of capitalism and the marketplace that demands consumerism and uh, that plays finan financial games with money that do not produce anything that's of value to anybody. 
And, uh, right. and <laughs> that's, those are just two examples. I mean, capitalism has, is also rooted in, um, in inequality and in uh, what can be called a caste system of subjugation and oppression of people, primarily people of color, people of the global South. Um, and that is really part and parcel of how it keeps um, it's, it, it's the population uh, obedient, I guess, or compliant is that they're, they're the fear of being, um, of being less than, of becoming less than human, and therefore whole populations of, of people become less than human in, in the capitalist system. So that, right. that's, uh, that is a, a real problem and we're all doing our small part to try to demonstrate that it doesn't have to be that way. It is not, um, it is not an inevitable part of human nature to oppress others. Um, so the idea that we have to have hierarchies in order to function as a society is really not correct. And that is part of the aim is to demonstrate ways of relating to each other politically and economically that are equitable and just. How, how does that system of subjugation and, and uh, devaluation of of some uh, and and the benefit of others relates to the current food system in the United States. Oh, well, I mean, the current food system in the United States is based on exploitation of of large numbers of people who are at the lowest rungs of society and don't even. Uh, are, are not even included in the labor laws that were enacted in the New Deal. I'm talking about farm workers in particular, um, food service workers of all kinds, lowest paid people, most exploited, usually people of color and immigrants, including undocumented undocumented immigrants subjected to all kinds of abuse. And this is a carryover from uh, from slavery that was what built this country and it was an agricultural um, necessity on, in, in the eyes of the, the original um, settlers in southern states in particular, of course, but it also supported was supported by the industrialists of the north who wanted to, to be able to obtain cotton cheaply for the mills. Um, so it is this, the, the whole food system is predicated on um, mass production and, uh, and centralized massive um, production centers and then distribution that does not get to everybody who needs it. Right. And that is uh, obviously one of the 
big problems, not only in terms of distribution and economics, but also a political uh, uh, discussion. It's not, it's not just alone an economic conversation. This is what social ecology tries to get at, that it, it has a, a political as well as an economic and an ecological component mm -hmm. that needs to be talked all together. Am I right? That's right. And it really is a holistic uh, understanding that it's all it's it's an ecological understanding in the in the fact that we see that it's all connected. We can't um, we can't end the oppression of of people um, based only on an economic you know paradigm or uh, you know or a political paradigm. But we have to also, I mean, it's also ecological. We can't end the, um, the exploitation and extract extraction of resources from the environment that are causing pollution, damaging human health without addressing the social and political dimensions. Yeah. Okay, we are going to take a break right now uh, to listen from a, from one of our sponsors, uh, but we'll okay. be back. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conte within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conte. Conte takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conte is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Welcome back. I am Carlos Yescas, and today I'm talking to organic farmer and thinker Grace Gruccioni, a member of the Institute for Social Ecology. Before the break, we were talking about the, the ideas be, uh, behind social ecology and our current food system in the United States and the challenges uh, address, uh, that need to be addressed. I want to bring this conversation now closer to the topic that, of cutting the curd as we talk about uh, cheese and dairy. And so I would like to ask you, Grace, I know that, that, uh, that you have worked in, or, in organic, uh, but also regin 
it's regenerative agriculture and other ways of uh, addressing these issues. Um, and so I would like to get a sense, how can small producers of dairy, including cheese producers, help make a change in the current situation? Is, is organic a better option? Are local consumption, local sales, you know, small markets uh, the better way? What would you say that is um, you know, sort of a, a good path forward? Well, I'm not a dairy expert, but I have, um, I have worked on and been involved with uh, dairy farms and dairy producers and processors and in developing the organic standards for dairy. And I know that there's a lot of controversy in that area right now. And I know that we're losing small dairy farms at a terrible, at a, at a heartbreaking rate. And I come from Vermont, <laughs> which, uh, in which the, the dairy industry is, has been a bedrock of our state, uh, of our state economy for uh, many decades, uh, maybe, you know, over, you know, probably 200 years. And it is in real trouble. And um, right. we're just as an example, I, I'm sure you've heard about the fact that that uh, a major organic milk market, Horizon Organic, um, decided to cancel the contracts of almost a hundred northeastern dairy small dairy farmers because they decided it was no longer economically justifiable to send a milk truck to go pick up from all of these small farms when they are able to get massive amounts of organic milk from uh, huge concentrated uh, Midwestern dairy farms, and there's a lot of controversy about whether those farms are actually skirting the organic standards and undercutting the prices. And the dairy industry has long been, I mean, it's not, it's not at all peculiar to organic or even to food, <laughs> the concentration of uh, the consolidation of many industries is a big concern um, at this point. So that's that's that side of the of the coin. It's just extremely hard for a small dairy producer, um, especially if they're just selling the fluid milk to a large processor to make a living. And most of the time they're right. selling their milk at below the cost of production, which is hardly sustainable. So, um, so the question is, you know, can small producers survive if they produce value-added products? Well, we we do have some examples of um, of small yogurt producers and small cheese producers who have basically vertically integrated small systems. Um, and who market more or less locally. I mean, certainly regionally, I'm thinking of um, Butterworks Farm yogurt. But then I also have a, have a 
had a role in the origin story of Stonyfield Farm, which uh, hmm. I, I don't think I'll, I'll tell that story, but it, it really um, started out to be just a small uh, educational center that was going to sell yogurt as a way to support the school. Um, but it, um, that is, is an example of, of, a, of a large international um, organization that is trying to make it possible for the small, really organic, really grass-based dairy farms to survive. Um, I know that that's controversial. So it isn't easy, in, in other words, and it's important uh, for people who, who want to be able to participate in helping to, to search out those small local producers. Um, if you live in a big city, it's not so easy. And I know you're in New York, is that correct? I'm actually in England, but I used to live in New York, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, um, in New York, there's there are some wonderful farmer's markets where you can, you can go and find small cheese producers and small dairy products producers of other kinds uh, and buy their products, but it's not very accessible to people who don't have time to go to farmer's markets or don't have the money. Um, so the Horizon Organic products are, are the stuff that's sold in places like Walmart and Costco where more people buy their organic products. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. There really needs to be a a decided um, effort by at all different levels of government really to support um, farmers who provide and this is something that that's happening in various places around the country and that's already been been implemented in Europe to some extent is that idea of payment for ecosystem services so a dairy farmer a small dairy farmer who grazes cattle and and takes excellent care of soil and so forth and so on doesn't doesn't apply biocides um, is is really providing much more than than nutritious food. They're providing clean water and healthy soil which is essential to mitigating climate change. So there are, there is a, a payment for ecosystem services working group in Vermont that is, um, that is mandated by state legislation, looking at different ways other than just trying to measure soil carbon to support, um, support farmers, and uh, and other land managers in um, in providing the kinds of the kinds of environmental and ecological benefits that they 
now are not compensated for, but that are really an important product. Definitely, and that sounds like an exciting move uh, to really account for some of the th ways that small productions can actually be um, maintaining the soil and maintaining the landscape uh, and, and not only these large productions that you know may produce organic for consumption, but it act they actually don't have uh, you know, the environmental impact is still a large amount of environmental impact, even if the products that they that they end up selling into the marketplace are products that may seem more ecologically friendly. I don't want to imply that um, that organic farming is not necessarily make providing those benefits. I think that that was certainly the intent of the the program as written um, to ensure that the that all organic farmers did things right um, in practice that doesn't always happen but they're more likely to be organic farmers than anything else uh, and the these other the other these other concepts like regenerative and um, resilient agriculture and various other variants are are fine and good, but they're not really any different from uh, what the the organic standards required. Um, so I just wanted to make that point. Thank you. That that's a good clarification for the listeners and and for me as well. Um, uh, can I ask you now? As we move forward addressing the challenges that um, that come with climate change, is there a viable option? And I have a follow-up to that, which I'll do now, and maybe you can address both together or separate. I'm, I'm, I'm good with both. Um, are plant-based milk alternatives a better option when considering in the environmental impacts of our consumption? Um, well, I, I can certainly answer that the second part with a with a definitive no <laughs> um, but the uh, I did want to also mention some of the other benefits of organic dairy in terms of the health benefits as well as the environmental benefits um, and I'm looking at a a report that was put out in 2019 by the Organic Center, which is a research uh, institute that's part of the Organic Trade Association. But, you know, in addition to having lots of all the good things that, that dairy does have, um, it there's lots of research at this point to show that uh, organic milk doesn't have all the antibiotics and growth hormones and other pesticide residues that can uh, that can be found in conventional milk. Um, it is higher in omega-3 fatty acids than conventional milk. And again, the pasture requirement is crucial to mitigating climate change. So I will definitely put in a nod for 
organic dairy is important, is an important, has an important role in mitigating climate change. Um, the, the, I know that the beef industry has been slammed a lot because of methane and there are, um, there are a lot of answers to that issue. Um, and there are a lot of, there's a, still some controversy about whether or not uh, cattle actually build healthy soil and increase carbon sequestration. Um, but there is, it, it's pretty clear uh, from all evidence I've seen that having dairy animals on pasture, having any ruminants on pasture, whether they're beef or sheep or goats or camels, uh, are, <laughs> is an important uh, means of combating desertification in the arid areas, semi-arid areas of the world and combating climate change um, in a number of ways, including restabilizing the water cycles and uh, actually bringing the global temperatures down enough to be able to, for, for organisms to adapt, even if we can't stop. So you know, the, 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 um, the worst of climate change, it, it's a help. So, you know, there, there's a huge amount of literature on how building soil can, uh, can really overcome and possibly even eliminate the, the additional CO2 in the atmosphere. And organic agriculture also has a, a, a blanket um, prohibition on synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, which is one of the worst, uh, the worst contributors to climate change in the form of nitrous oxide, which is like 315 times as potent a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. And it is uh, a result of um, excess nitrogen fertilizer uh, applied to the soil. Right. Uh, so I thank you for that answer. It's a very complete answer. So I'm going to try to parse it out for for because I, I think you bring very important topics, not only on organic and dairy organic um, and, and its impact on 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 climate change and how it can be addressed, but also on plant-based and and uh, and as it being an alternative. I, I want to stay sort of in the in the com let's say conventional dairy. I don't think there's there's unconventional dairy, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> there's just a dairy here uh, for for all the milk and cheese aficionados of this podcast. But um, but uh, yeah. So do you see? Um, do you see a space then for dairy uh, within the uh, sort of ways of agriculture that could uh, 
you know, help in carbon sequestration, but also in actually feeding, uh, you know, the growing population uh, of the world. Absolutely, and in particularly smaller scale dairy. Um, you know, the 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 consolidation and centralization of dairy is is really kind of a horror show, in my opinion. Uh, it, it requires this uh, ultra pasteurization, ultra high temperature packaging, long distance transport, um, and, and it's it it doesn't make any sense ecologically at all. Um, but it definitely makes sense to have very localized dairy production that feeds the people in the the community in which it's based that um, that maybe goes into um, somewhat more distant urban markets but is really uh, it really doesn't make sense ecologically to be transporting fluid milk and tankers long distances to, to a processing plant or concentrating tens of thousands of cows in a in confinement dairy. I mean that's that's a horror show and and um, and it's a horror show not just for the animals but for the humans who tend them and for the communities in which they're located in the the manure becomes a, a pollutant and a waste hazard rather than a, a benefit, which small regionally sustainable operations. Uh, the dairy manure is, is excellent stuff for making compost. So, you know, it, it really is a matter of relocalizing food and Rather than thinking in terms of the, the having to feed the world, the, the answer is get out of the way and let the world feed itself. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good uh, way of thinking about it, and I also think it's a good segue to that second part of my question about plant-based milk mm -hmm. alternatives, and and I think it, it's a it's an interesting conversation that you know so many of these plant-based milks and meats uh, are actually the products uh, of big conglomerates now that you know they're being bought out by these big. Uh, companies and so this centralization of of food mm -hmm. of, of these new foods actually ends up creating more of that problem that we're here talking about that you know maybe regional smaller systems are better than these trying to feed the world from above and at a boardroom in in either london or new york uh, absolutely and and it might be worth mentioning that the the uh the plant-based meat substitutes pretty much depend on genetically modified organisms to exist. Um, and they're definitely not organically produced. And, you know, even just the, the simple plant-based milks, um, aside from coconut milk, which is a, a tree fruit, and some of the nut milks, 
but even that, I mean, almonds are huge users of water in California, which is ridiculous. But, um, you know, any kind of cultivated crop, whether it's grains or vegetables, is is very difficult to grow in a way that does not contribute to soil degradation in some way. Uh, organic farmers can do it, and it is, and you know, it is possible to to do some tillage and cultivation, and that are required by annual row crops like oats or or um, other grains or vegetables, but it is not, um, it is not the most ideal way, the, the most ideal way to protect soil and to, carb, to sequester carbon and to reverse desertification is to do everything, is to keep the ground covered the maximum amount of time of the year by green growing plants. Right. And grass is is the most effective way of doing that. And many, most of the world's agricultural land is only suited for grass and or trees and not cultivation. Right. And so that's why, you know, these small ruminants and even cows are, you know, kind of perform a, a double job of transforming that grass into, you know, those grasses into other bioavailable foods for human consumption. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, um, people in the global south who have minimal resources and who maybe are on the move a lot, um, the best way to carry their food with them is to make it walk itself. <laughs> It's true. Probably true. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Grace, for this conversation. We are at the time of the show. Uh, but before I go, anything else you would like to share with us about uh, the social ecology, the Institute of Social Ecology? Um, well, I, I would just um, advise people who are interested in, in the ideas that I talked about at the beginning to check out the website, maybe try one of our classes or webinars. We have a lot of different offerings coming up and um, get on our mailing list and, and learn more. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And listeners, uh, you can find that information on the Institute for Social Ecology website. It is social-ecology.org. And uh, as Grace mentioned, they're going to be having their food and climate justice class coming in May. And there's another class called Ecology, Democracy and Utopia. It's also going to be running this year. I should uh, come out myself and say that I took one of these classes during the pandemic. It was a wonderful uh, class to, uh, to, to take and uh, sparked a lot of my curiosity. Um, like always, I thank you for listening. And until next time, bye. Bye now. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.